All right, now we're looking at Isaiah chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and, rejo- and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness, into thick darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray now that um, you would help us to understand it, and you would help us to see how it applies to our lives, and you would convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be moved by it. And as we've sung, speak, O Lord. Yes, we do pray that you would speak and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, you know, Pastor Brandon, he started off by saying Christmas is all about waiting. And indeed it is. Christmas is, a lot of it has to do with waiting, doesn't it? Right? Just think about the kids and all the anticipation that they have 
leading up to Christmas. How many sleeps are there till Christmas, kids? Do we know? Some of the kids, they might be keeping count. Some of them know. I saw a hand raised. Yes, that's right. Because they know what's coming at the end, right? Christmas is right around the corner, and there's that Christmas tree with all the Christmas presents, and they're just waiting for that day. I'd have to say it's hard for the kids too, right? Hard for them to wait. How many of us have stories of kids, or maybe it was you, where you just couldn't help yourself? The presents are all there, and you're just it's screaming out to you, take a peek, take a peek, right? Yeah, Christmas, it's all about waiting. You know, it doesn't get any easier as you get older. Waiting really is difficult. If anything, it, waiting becomes much more painful as you get older, even when the outcome is in sight. It's not easy. I mean, is there any kind of waiting in life that's good? That's something to think about. If you have any answers, come share that with me after. But, you know, I, I just keep thinking about that classic scene from the, the kids' movie Zootopia. <laughs> the scene is the DMV scene, right? And who are all the workers at the DMV? They're all sloths, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you're going in, and, and the, the two characters, they need to get information from one of the workers. I mean, that... that scene really captures the agony <laughs> of not being in control and having to wait on other people's time, right? Hey, Priscilla, <laughs> what do you call a three-humped camel? That's the scene. That's one of the lines in, in that scene, right? That's how they talk. <laughs> The character's in a rush, but this is what's going on, yeah. For our purposes, though, don't think DMV. Think CIA, okay? Thinking about spies, okay? Spies. For us, you know, um, this is real. The latest news. There was a U.S. ambassador to a Latin American country. He was discovered to be a spy for Cuba. How long was he a spy for? 40 years. And he finally got caught. 40 years of waiting, of planning, making little moves, but also wondering with every little move, will I get caught this time? There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of challenges. You have to manage your fears. For spies, this is like a real big deal. I know most of us, we probably wouldn't make good spies. It's probably not even that interesting to us, right? But just try to imagine for yourself being a spy in, for example, Hitler's SS. Can you think about, like, imagine the first time where you have to raise your right hand to hail the Fuhrer. To do the very thing that you hate to do you got to imagine how hard that must have been that very first time where you have to go against all your deepest convictions. A lot of ways, that's how God's people have to live. There's a lot of waiting involved. There are real tensions and values and challenges, all kinds of fears that we have to manage. That's the mindset that we want to have as we come to our passage this morning and we'll, where we'll see what God's people, what they themselves have to face. 
There's a lot of waiting. There's going to be convictions that get challenged and a lot of fears to face. How are they going to do it? How will they manage? How would we manage? Because actually, our situation isn't very different. We might be surprised at God's answer. That brings us to our first point, wartime. The Lord is making clear what time it is. He's declaring about what is about to happen in the land. And he's going to make it clear in two ways. First, a billboard, and then secondly, a child. Okay, first, a billboard. Look at verse 1, Isaiah 8, 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. Okay? Um, I've, I've mentioned this in the past, but May 20th, 2012, was supposed to be a very huge day. May 20th, 2012. What was the significance of that day? That was when Harold Camping, the false teacher, prophesied that it would be the end of the world. Okay? And he had raised millions of dollars to get everyone ready, to let everyone know that he had calculated this date, and he had billboards all over the world, actually. God's billboard. God's billboard says, belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz. Okay? Now, the function of this sign was to tell people that something big was about to happen. And God is calling it and because he's making it happen. And so Isaiah, he has to have this sign witnessed to by the priest. He has to have it notarized as official, okay? What Camping, Harold Camping, the false teacher, was not authorized to do, Isaiah was. But what did all of that mean, right? So it brings us to the second sign, the naming of the child. Look at verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. You know that word, Mahershalal Hashbaz? That was used to name Isaiah's second son. Okay? See, the naming of the children was to function as like a living prophecy. Just for instance, if you were given a name, Mahershalal Hashbaz, you can predict what your future is going to look like, right? Starting with your childhood, <laughs> it can be kind of hard. You know what's crazy is that there's actually an actor in Hollywood who has this name, Mahershalal Hashbaz. Um, he's the African-American from the movie The Green Book. I don't know if you saw The Green Book, but there, there's an African-American. He grew up in a Christian home, but because of the name, he converted to Islam. So his name is Mahershala Ali, okay? Now, I don't know why he converted to Islam. It's not because of the name. I'm just making that up. But there actually is someone named Mahershala Hashbaz, now Mahershala. Now, so the naming, it was functioning like a prophecy, where just like a child is born, so the word would also have life. A child is going to have a future, and this word is also going to have a future. Okay? And what does the word mean? It means the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. That's what the footnote in the Bible tells us. And the idea behind that word is that it's meaning like to pounce. 
as in a, a lion pouncing on wounded prey. It's going to be like an easy meal for them, right? And the Lord is saying that before the boy, Isaiah's second son, gets to the age where he can say mama and dada, Assyria would plunder the wealth of Damascus and of Samaria, Syria and Israel. Now, I need to explain what that's all about, too. Okay? It's a continuation from last week, previous chapter, chapter 7. There, the two nations of Syria and Israel, they were ready to conquer Judah. But the king of Judah, King Ahaz, reached out to the Assyrian um, uh, emperor, the big superpower of the day, for help. And Assyria gladly said, I will deal with Syria and Israel. That was from our first reading, 2 Kings 16. And just to get, help you get a visual idea of what's going on, I've included a map for you, right? So in the handout, you should have um, a map on one side of two little kingdoms. There is Judah down south, way down at the bottom. Israel, a little bit above that. Syria, above that. And then to scale, Assyria, how big this um, superpower was, all right? Now, for um, King Ahaz of Judah, who was being threatened by Israel and Syria, turning to Assyria seemed like a very shrewd move. But before he reached out to Assyria, the Lord reached out to King Ahaz. And the Lord said to King Ahaz, do not trust Assyria. That was the word from chapter 7 last week. The way the Lord put it to Ahaz was, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Would King Ahaz be firm in faith? No. And because Ahaz couldn't trust the Lord, the Lord gave Ahaz a sign that a child, I mean a virgin, would bear a son. His name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay? This was as if the Lord was saying, I'm going to do something so unbelievable that when it happens, you'll realize you should have listened to me. You should have trusted me. Several years ago, you know, before the whole meme thing started, or as it was starting, you know, there were all these phrases that was going around. And one of them was, hold my beer, watch this. Maybe you, you remember that one, right? <laughs> And, and, you know, that's a guy who's going to go and do something really crazy. Now, God's version of that line, right, you know, being a Christmas time, he would, God would say, hold my eggnog, watch this, all right? And what's he going to do? He's going to have a virgin bear a child. Basically, the bottom line was that this sign of the virgin that's going to bear a child, it was a sign of judgment on King Ahaz for King Ahaz's unbelief. He thought he was being clever by seeking the help of Assyria, but he was being faithless, according to God. The sign of the billboard and the child's name. This was the Lord's way of telling the people on the ground, this is going to be the play. This is how everything's going to unfold. I'm going to make it happen. I'm telling you so that you can know that I'm in charge and I can help you. You, um, your king is turning to Assyria. He should not do that. 
you are about to go under enemy occupation. You need a better king, but until then, will you trust me? That's what this opening scene is all about, okay? Now, before we move on, let me just briefly say, um, I want to point out that we live in a time of tremendous peace and prosperity. But let's not be mistaken, folks. We are at war. It's not a physical war, but it's a spiritual warfare that we're in. I mean, how big does the billboard have to be for us to believe that we're battling against spiritual powers, right? That we cannot take on on our own. Behind all the powers that we see in front of us, in the news, in our lives, there are spiritual forces behind them that are at work. Now, King Ahaz, he didn't see all the spiritual powers. All he saw were the imminent threats right in front of his face. And if you don't see the spiritual powers, then you're not going to turn to the only place that you can be helped by, and that is the Lord. Just throwing that out there. That was our first point. The setting is wartime. Second, allegiances. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, that's the um, son of Israel, um, the king of Israel. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. And, O Emmanuel. The metaphor of water is used because in chapter 7 we saw that the water supply was like the, the vulnerable weak link. And King Ahaz didn't trust the Lord to protect him and the water against Syria and Israel. That's from last week's sermon. So what Judah would do, would get instead, because King Ahaz didn't trust uh, the Lord, what Judah would get instead was the mighty river. And that river was the Euphrates that would flow out of the Assyrian capital. Ahaz thought he did the smart thing, but God's people would feel the pressure of bowing to Assyria. The image that we're given is of Assyrian occupation. Judah is drowning. The water levels are rising up to the neck, and before you know it, it's going to be up to the nose when they can't breathe anymore. It's like if you ask the mafia to help you, maybe deal with like a, a really bad neighbor or something like that? Do you think they're going to go out of your way to help little old you and not have it cost you something, right? You're just waiting for the day when they're going to come knocking on the door to collect on that favor. And of course, they're going to have you do something that's probably illegal or compromising, and you're going to have no choice. That's what's going on. With all that's about to happen, though, God's people would have a choice. Would they follow the king or would they follow Yahweh the Lord? They're going in different directions. Would they live by faith or would they live by sight? King Ahaz, he was not living by faith but by sight. All he saw before him were the scary invaders, were the mighty Assyrians breathing down his neck, and he would give in to them. But it also seems like the Lord is very confident that he's going to have a people who trust him, who won't give in. 
In verses 9 and 10, there's like this dramatic shift in the point of view. Now it's God's people speaking, and they're shouting to Assyria, bring it. Okay? Verses 9 and 10, they're battle cries. We get a perspective from the faithful remnant. It's a stirring poetic word, verse 10. It's summed up. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for God is with us. Okay? The faithful, they'll feel the pressure, but they have this chest-thumping attitude. We will not be intimidated by big, bad Assyria. All the propaganda, all the taunts that God's people would hear from Assyria, frightening as it will be, the Lord will make sure that God's people will trust him. Why? Because God is with us. That's what this passage says, right? The faithful are going to be relying on that sign, that miracle that a virgin will bear a child. They're waiting for it. And while they're waiting, the Lord had a word to pump them up, pump up the faithful. It's verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. This is what it all comes down to. This is the heart of the passage, folks. Living by faith is recognizing the Lord is with us. And if we really believe that the Lord is with us, then we will fear him rightly. If the people really believe that God is with them, they would fear him over all other things. See, the sign of this child that God is going to be with us, that, that faith that the people have, it's going to give them a fear of the Lord. And that is the help that the people need. We'll be talking about this some more, but it just doesn't seem like any help. But this is the life of faith. If you believe in the Lord, then we have nothing to fear. We are more than conquerors. It's about fearing the Lord. And I think we need to address this because some of us might find that hard to hear and believe. You might be surprised about this language about fearing the Lord. And the church has portrayed God as like a sentimental, mushy, lovey-dovey kind of God. And it's been as a reaction against um, previous generations that portrayed God as this scary and scolding God. And both portrayals are inaccurate and incomplete. (laughs) The Bible speaks about the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, as a really good thing. I mean, the book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. So we need to know that there is a right fear of the Lord and a wrong fear of the Lord. And let me just point out four distinguishing features of a right fear of the Lord. First, the right fear of the Lord, that is just simply a response of worship. I don't know if you've thought of fear and worship together, but that's, they go hand in hand. A worshipful response is what um, Isaiah experienced in in Isaiah chapter 6, two chapters earlier, right? Where he got a glimpse of the Lord in the holy temple, beholding the Lord's glory. Isaiah could only see the backside of the robe of um, the, the Lord. 
And Isaiah was undone. But he was also able to stay in communion with the holy, holy, holy God. That's what worship really is. It's a right fear. Secondly, the right fear of the Lord, that is God's presence, God with us. Why could Isaiah remain in communion with God? Because Isaiah was atoned for. God's awe and his mercy together made it possible for Isaiah to remain in God's presence. If you believe God is with you, present to you, then your response, your right response, is one of fear, worshipful fear. And so third, the right fear of the Lord, that is simply reality. We are creatures, and God is the creator. The more we understand that real simple truth, the greater the distance there will be between us and God, the bigger God will be, and that's why we will fear him. He's made us for himself, and we exist because we're connected to him. We can't escape him, and we need him. We're repelled and attracted by God at the same time. Peter Lombard, he's a medieval Christian. He wrote about the, the fear of the heavenly father. He said, Filial fear, that's the fatherly family fear, now makes us fear lest we offend the one whom we love and lest we become separated from him. This is not so much fear of punishment, but a fear of ignoring or insulting one we love and who loves us. Fear the Lord. That's just our rea the reality of life, the way that God has created everything. And then just lastly, the right fear of the Lord, that is sanity. Sanity is conforming to reality, the way God designed the world to operate. God's common grace enables the just and the just, unjust to do the same kind of good work in the world. But the difference is, is that the unjust, they stray from God's design. They even start to think, I can do whatever I want because I am God. And then others will say, there is no God. And that is insanity. Trusting God rightly, living in obedience to him, is the life of blessing. The most sane way to live in the world. I mean, why would we want to spurn this God who has made us and loves us, right? Bring it all together. The surprising way that God helps us is to have us to fear him rightly. Because when we get to that expression of faith, fearing the Lord is so much better than fearing everything else in the world. It's a very big claim. What does it look like? Well, in the context with King Ahaz, the Lord was saying, fear me. Don't fear the Assyrian military might and political machinery. Don't get alarmed. Even though there's going to be a lot of talk and threats and conspiracies and rumors and fears, King Ahaz, he lived not by faith but by sight. He got alarmed. He got desperate. He thought he could handle it. He relied on his political power and shrewd diplomacy. What did it produce? More uncertainty, more rumors, more speculations, more conspiracies, more propaganda. 
but within God's people, who would they fear? The king is lost, but what about the people? There would be a divide, those who side with the king and those who side with Yahweh. Look at verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. God is either going to be a sanctuary or a stumbling block. And guess what? Both people, both sides, they're all going to say, no, we are trusting the Lord. But clearly there is a difference. It's going to get desperate for the people of God. Isaiah warns in verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? See, the threat's going to be so real that God's people, they're going to turn to the experts of the day instead of the Lord. Isaiah calls out the mediums and the necromancers. He calls them out because they were the latest and most advanced forms of prognostication and forecasting the times and the politics and the nations, what's going on in the world. People would hang on to their every word. They're chirping, they're squawking, they're muttering. You've hung on with me, and I appreciate that, so let me apply this to us now, okay? Are we living by faith or by sight? Are we fearing the Lord more or are we fearing our immediate threats in life? You see, the situation in Isaiah's day was no different than ours. And for us, just think about culturally how it applies to us. It's hard for us. We have all these news outlets, talk shows, cultural craziness, political bullying. What was that chirp? Oh, I think the, the experts are saying we should boycott the other side. What was that high-pitched tweet? Sounded like we should cancel anyone with a flawed history. What's that deep muttering? It sounded like we should withdraw and stick only to our kind. We need to feel the challenge here. For us today, we know the politics and the social issues, they are so important. They matter so much. You think it's possible that we could get caught up in that and, be, and fear that more than we fear the Lord? I mean, I have noticed it in me. And sadly, I may have even voiced certain things from up here at the pulpit, and I hope you can forgive me for that. In fact, if you have noticed things that I've said that make you think and wonder, you should come talk to me about it. Let us reason this out together by faith. I also suspect that I'm not alone in this feeling. I mean, last year we, we read the book, right? I, this is not the first time I've mentioned this. We've read the book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us by Michael Horton, theologian, very reformed, good guy. His thesis was that the fear of God drives out the fear of everything else. You know, more than one person came up to me afterwards and said they didn't like the book. They disagreed with what Horton had to say. And I have to suspect that the readers were not gripped by the fear of the Lord if they felt like they could reject it. Now, the only reason why I say this, here's the point that I'm trying to make. The only reason I say this is because the fear of the Lord should so far and away 
override any kind of political argument, policy, or solution. That is pretty shocking. Let me just try to shock you another way in case you missed it. I don't know who said this, but there's this observation that was made that we were taught not to talk about religion and politics, and therefore, we don't know how to talk about religion and politics, right? I, I like that. It seems like a true observation. But you know what? Christians ought to be able to talk, talk about politics. Do you know why? Because it just doesn't matter as much. And guess what? We could talk about it and even be gracious about it. I mean, this is hard for me to say. Folks, King Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, thought that the politics mattered more than his faith. We're in a theocracy we're talking about here. And for us, we're like spies, okay? Let's, let's turn it. We're like spies. We're living in a foreign land. We're dealing with spiritual warfare. And for me, as much as I love my country, you know, there are, we're negotiating two sets of rules and values here, and we need to be clear about where our allegiances lie. You know, maybe the spy analogy is not a great one. You're thinking, I'm not trying to be a spy. I'm not trying to be duplicitous or, or fake a loyalty. Of course, we can be Christian and American, uh, and the reason why I use the analogy of the spy is so that we feel the struggle, the tension, the challenges to our convictions, the competing values as we struggle to fear the Lord over fearing all that is in our faces. Will I stay living by faith or will I, will I be tempted to live by sight? Fear the Lord or the fear the earthly powers of the times. You know, as messy as a, a, this cultural moment that we're in is, we are much better off than you know, God's people and King Ahaz's time. They were under like threat of judgment and occupation and invasion. And this isn't an excuse for them, but Ahaz, more, Ahaz had more reason to stumble than we do in our 21st century plush American life, right? So can we be grateful? <laughs> Even grateful for our political enemies I mean, this is the shocking word that we're getting. As far as I know, I don't think Jesus has rescinded the command to love your enemy. I know, I might be preaching to the choir, but may this word be feared and embraced. May it lower the temperatures in our hearts. And I've gone on, and you might not care at all about politics or the cultural moment. That's fine, that's fair. Um, but what do you fear? Because we all have fears. Is it the Lord or is it the loss of your comfort and happiness? Is it the Lord or all the loss of the things that you love so much? How can we be helped when we're afraid and it's not a right fear of the Lord? Because all of us are dealing with that, right? Brings us to our final point. Waiting. The amazing thing is, despite how we might feel and all the tensions we might struggle with, God is confident that people will trust him despite the chaos and all the dangers and all the fears. 
I mean, look at this rousing word in verse 16. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Okay? The disciples of Isaiah, those who trust Isaiah's word, not King Ahaz's word, they're going to see the struggles and the losses play out. They're going to experience the suffering, and they're going to have to wait. And why can they? Because they hope in the Lord. They hope in the children, these living prophecies. Maharshalal Hashbaz, Emmanuel. God staked his glory on the future of his people to trust him. And he's going to make it happen. Only a matter of time. Maharshalal Hashbaz. That sign would come true. And in this final scene, we're given a glimpse of the future. Verse 21. Just look at verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a picture of Israel being taken captive, exiled from their homeland by the Assyrians, as they're marching through the land in chains. There's a big sign over this um, procession of people, of captives, belonging to Maharshalal Hashbaz. Here's the prey. They were cursing God and the king. Why? Because the king's political powers would ultimately fail. Those who hoped in the king, they would have been crushed to the point that they're going to lose the plot altogether, forget that they are God's people, and instead curse him. In the handout that you have, um, on the other side, I've given you a timeline of Israel's history. I call, it's called the coat hanger, the coat hanger. That's just a, a simple way to remember what this timeline looks like and the important features of it. And I want to point out two important features of this timeline. <laughs> First is, you know, the line goes straight down and then it divides. That's the first really significant event in Israel's history, is that they divided. There was civil war. The south would be Judah, the north would be Israel. The second um, significant event in that timeline is the end of the line of Israel. God would end the line of his own people. That's what Isaiah and this whole section is all about, why we need the sign of the Emmanuel. Division and faithless, unrepentant idolatry were the two huge, on the scale of a national significance, on the scale of judgment, two huge sins. There you have it. God's people, they really needed a lot of help. The faithful, they hoped in the Lord, why? Because of that one last remaining sign of the Emmanuel child. That's what they really needed. They needed the assurance and the proof that indeed God would be with them. But when? Waiting. They would live with faith and hope. Let me end it. Brief word of application. For us, if God is with us, 
then we can fear him rightly. And that faith expression of fearing God rightly, that drives out all other fears. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what Isaiah tells us. That's what the Bible tells us. And if we really believe that God is with us and that we can fear him rightly, then at the very least, we can have peace. At the most, we will be bold and daring for the Lord. But we really need to believe. Is God with you? Is God with us? Alexander Schmemann is a, an Orthodox priest who wrote, we live the majority of time assuming God's absence rather than his particular presence. Not because he isn't there, but because we are not attuned to his presence. That's why it is so good that we get to celebrate Christmas. We need a real powerful reminder that God is with us where we can enjoy the wonder and the splendor that God has come down in the flesh. Yes, Jesus, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, he is not with us physically, but did he leave us alone? No, he sent the Holy Spirit, and he wouldn't come down just to be around us. He would actually dwell within us. The Spirit stands in the place of Jesus. The person of the Spirit stands in the place of the person of Jesus. Truly God. So we can confidently say and truly believe that he is present to us always. God is with us. The Emmanuel prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus. He's with us and so we can fear him rightly. That's what it comes down to, the help that God gives us. Presence and fear. This is the right combination to help us live and wait and battle. Forget imagining being a spy. Envision what the fear of the Lord looks like for you as you face all your other fears in life. I'd imagine it would be hearing the awesome God say to all the spiritual enemies that might plague you, that might throw darts of doubt and insecurity and condemnation, you're hearing the Lord say to you, be still and know that I am God. That's God saying to all the enemies, hush, I'm dealing with them. I just want to end with this um, one little glimpse of the Lord dealing with his enemies. It's, this is at, towards the end of Jesus' life. Um, when he's betrayed in, in Gethsemane. And John has this one little brief scene that you kind of just read over. You don't make, it's one of those things where it doesn't really make sense until you're in the right frame. So John 18, verse 3 says this. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some soul officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. John's the only gospel that includes this scene of these guards falling back 
And it's because Jesus revealed just a little glimpse of his glory when he said, I am he, because he was basically saying, I am Yahweh. And just even with that little utterance, God's glory was revealed, fall back. That's what God does with our enemies. That's what God does with the spiritual forces that would be against us. That's our king. We have real power, real right fear, where we know that he is with us. And so we are, as I said, more than conquerors, unstoppable. Let's pray that we would believe that. Father, thank you so much for this word to us. A word that we all need to hear, that in the times, in this joyous time of Christmas, it's also stressful. We need to hear from you, O oh God. Have you deal with all the things that we're afraid of and we're fearing in our lives? And so we hear from you in Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. He understands the unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We thank you, O God, that the sign of the Emmanuel child has been fulfilled. And so we can know that you are with us. You're with each one of us as we go out into all the world, as we face our inner fears and we face the fears that come and attack us. And that's how we as a church together will be able to live and move and serve your kingdom in the world. So we pray that you would help us to believe that fearing you rightly is the best way to live. We pray that in your grace you would illuminate our hearts to understand what that right fear looks like. Help us to behold you in all of your glory and splendor, in your fear and awe, and your love and compassion. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.